Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. So, Braveheart is undoubtedly one of my favorite movies on this entire list. It's just very well structured. It's three-hour runtime flies by as the plot is always advancing, but without ever feeling rushed. It won five Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director from Mel Gibson, Best Cinematography of the beautiful Scottish landscape and the battle scenes, Best Sound Effects Editing, again, no doubt, for the battle scenes, and Best Makeup, I guess for the blue face paint battle makeup. It's just a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes, still solid, but definitely exposed to some backlash, whether that's anti-Gibson hate or some historical issues that we will get to, or just critics generally feeling it's overrated. Whatever, it's still 77, and it's an 8.4 on IMDb, currently the number 75 all-time film on that site, and again, I love this movie. Now, I wanted to say all that up front, because now I'm going to destroy it. I originally wasn't even going to include it at all on the list, or I was at least going to relegate it to a bonus episode, due to some of the inaccuracies that I was aware of, but as I got going, very few of the movies on my list were without their own sins. So why not put Braveheart on full display? It also gives me a chance to discuss a more mainstream film. My list thus far has definitely run a little obscure. And I'm going to go full on spoilers from the beginning. So run away now if you don't want to know everything that happens in Braveheart. And let me just rip the bandaid off right at the start and say, William Wallace never met the princess, married to Longshanks' son in the movie. And if he did, she was a small child living in France at the time. The details of the battles are all made up. Longshanks outlived Wallace by a couple years, not minutes. And Wallace was a lesser noble, not a peasant farmer. Whew. Okay, now let's recap the movie. We open in Scotland in 1280 CE. The opening voiceover says, Historians from England will say that I'm a liar, but history is written by those who have hanged heroes. Okay, fine. A good historical note about bias. It continues. The king of Scotland had died without a son. And the King of England, a cruel pagan known as Edward the Longshanks, claimed the throne. Scottish nobles fought Longshanks and each other for the crown. Okay, so, kinda. The King of Scotland, Alexander III, died in 1286, so we're already six years off for no reason. And a couple quick notes on this King Alexander. He was the four times great-grandson of Duncan from the Macbeth play, and he was actually married to Longshanks' sister. And our infant future king of Norway, Håkon Håkonsson, who we met in The Last King, died while fighting Alexander over islands off the Scottish coast. And yes, Alexander died without an heir, having outlived his sons. It appears he died while honeymooning with his second wife, with whom he hoped to conceive an heir, and he was found on the shore with a broken neck and is presumed to have just fallen to his death. But his heir was then supposed to be his young granddaughter, a Norwegian princess, who was also the great-granddaughter of Håkon Håkonsson. And the plan was to even have her marry Longshanks' son. But on her way sailing over to Scotland, she, she died when she was about seven years old, and so she was never crowned as queen. That opening voiceover also called Longshanks a pagan. Obviously, it's meant as an insult, I guess. But even if they weren't particularly devout, the English monarchs of the time were obviously Christian, not pagan. Okay, moving on. The movie then gets into proposed treaties between Longshanks and the Scottish nobles and how Longshanks betrays them. These are oversimplified, but in a way that I think only makes sense for a movie. As we always talk about, things happen more slowly in reality. 
Longshanks did strong-arm the nobles into accepting him as overlord of Scotland. So even if they decided on a new king, that king would be subservient to England. And there were constant squabbles over the lands Scottish nobles held in England and how much power they were willing to give up to the stronger Longshanks. At one point, Longshanks wanted the Scots to commit forces to help him against the French. Meanwhile, the Scots secretly allied with the French, which of course greatly angered Longshanks when he eventually found out about it. And the Scots did actually elect a king a couple of years after the death of the, of the Norwegian girl, but he wasn't particularly effective and abdicated four years later and was even held prisoner in the Tower of London for a time. So the movie does introduce us to a young William Wallace at this time and has his father and brother killed off screen in a skirmish against the English. The truth is we really don't know much of anything about the youth of Wallace. He doesn't appear in the historical record at all until he starts getting involved in the Scottish rebellion against the English. The film has his uncle take him away to the continent to raise him and educate him and we jump many years forward. We see the wedding of Longshanks' son, Prince Edward, to Isabella of France, the daughter of Philip IV of France, correctly called Longshanks' rival. And both the bride and groom here, incidentally, are descended from Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine from Becket and the Lion of Winter. This marriage took place in January of 1308 in France. She was about 12 years old and her husband was 23 years old. William Wallace had been dead for over two years at this time. Maybe they're going for some kind of Tarantino intentionally out of order thing. The movie here also hints overtly at young Edward's homosexuality, suggesting via voiceover that Longshanks may, might have to conceive any grandchildren himself, but he was also already dead at the time of this marriage. The prince and the future king Edward II, who was again king at the time he was married, may very well have been gay. He had several very close male relationships that drew suspicion, but these kind of things, when true, were never flaunted and rarely written about other than through hints and innuendo. And it's all too easy to forget that there were likely just as many homosexuals percentage-wise back then. But being out just was absolutely not an option. So if you happen to be a monarch or any man needing to marry, you most often still did your duty and sired children. Back in Scotland, we meet Robert the Bruce, the leading contender for the crown of Scotland. And he does seem to have roughly been who we see in the movie, and is probably the most significant Scottish figure in the film, which is kind of what it hints to at the end, but we'll get there in due time. An adult William Wallace now returns home after having grown up on the continent with his uncle. And again, there's still no historical record of him yet. So in the movie, he reconnects and quickly marries a neighbor girl from his youth. We then get a scene where she is assaulted by an English soldier, and there's a brief fight between... Wallace trying to get her out of town and save her, and they, they attack some guards, and she's captured while he gets away. He had thought that she had got away too, so the sheriff of the town slits her throat, and then they all kind of wait for Wallace to, to show up. He returns, and along with his friends, kills the English troops, and Wallace personally executes the sheriff who killed his wife. And I don't remember if the movie actually uses the term sheriff, but I am because this is where William Wallace enters the historical record. In May of 1297, William Wallace led a small uprising at Lanark and killed the sheriff there. Now, the idea that the event was initiated by the murder of Wallace's wife comes from a 15th century poem and isn't historically recorded anywhere. And actually, when asked about the historical accuracy of the movie, screenwriter Randall Wallace admits this poem was one of his main inspirations and sources of the story. And he was far more concerned with telling a compelling story than with getting everything correct. 
Also, it wasn't like this moment got everything started. There were already pockets of Scottish rebellion against the English, so while Wallace's action here was significant, it wasn't the first stone cast in this whole rebellion. Moving on, our our characters know that the English are about to come down on them hard, but they're ready for a fight, and we get the first big battle scene of the movie, the Battle of Stirling. I mentioned at the start that the movie made up or changed the battle details. Here's a great, or actually kind of horrible, example. This was the Battle of Stirling Bridge. The movie removed the bridge from the Battle of Stirling Bridge. It was a narrow bridge that gave the outnumbered Scots the advantage they needed. The English troops were forced to funnel down through the bridge, making them easier to pick off. And then the bridge collapsed and many English soldiers drowned. But yeah, the the Scots did win in an upset. The movie also makes a point to put a class distinction between Wallace and the nobles like Mornay. Well, it was Wallace and one Andrew Moray who both led at the Battle of Stirling. And again, as Wallace was a lesser noble himself, it's it's not as simple as the dichotomy of poor peasant Wallace for the people and, and rich Moray out for himself. Moray died after the Battle of Stirling, not after the battle at Falkirk at Wallace's hand, like his proxy here in the film. After the battle, the nobles make Wallace an official Scottish knight, but he makes them nervous. He's too idealistic and not willing to compromise. They drop a name here that I never caught before, but I had the subtitles on this time. One noble says to the other that the Balios support him, so we must. This is a reference to John Balio, the chosen king of the Scots I mentioned who served briefly after the death of the King Alexander and his Norwegian granddaughter. But by the time of the Battle of Stirling, he had abdicated, so he's rightfully not mentioned as Scottish king here. Though also to the rebels, his abdication was seen to have been coerced by Longshanks and therefore invalid. While the nobles continue to squabble and discuss naming a new king, Wallace says he plans to invade England. We get a brief moment of Wallace and Robert the Bruce talking alone, where the Bruce recommends caution. And this scene sets up the Bruce's stand against the English at the end. After seeing this movie a ton of times, it's easy to see this scene as Wallace sort of naming Bruce as his kind of spiritual heir, so to speak, uh, to the cause of Scottish independence. And indeed, in, in, in reality, just a couple months after the Battle of Stirling, Wallace did lead a raid into northern England, though probably not as far south as York, as shown in the movie. Longshanks then sends his daughter-in-law, the princess, with an offer to bribe Wallace into a peace treaty. Wallace refuses, but it was all a trick anyway, because Longshanks had already dispatched forces to kind of surround the Scots. And this leads to the Battle of Falkirk, where the nobles betray Wallace's cause and the Scots are defeated. Afterward, Wallace tracks down and assassinates two of these nobles. His legend among the Scots is at a fever pitch now. In reality, however, after his loss at Falkirk, Wallace's career as a Scottish freedom fighter was basically over. And I guess he leads no other battles in the movie either, but only because he is captured. In reality, he wasn't captured for another seven years, and little is known about what he did in the meantime. It appears he might have gone to France to advocate for the Scottish cause to their king, and the French certainly did not come to the aid of the English, as suggested in the movie. And before he's captured in the movie, they have him sleep with Princess Isabella and supposedly father the future Edward III. And this is easily the biggest historical accuracy in the entire movie. Again, they never met. The movie shows Robert the Bruce on Longshanks' side at the Battle of Falkirk, and this actually seems to be accurate. Things were complicated. The nobles often did do what was best for themselves, though his father's later involvement in setting up Wallace's capture, that, that's fabricated. Wallace was charged with treason and killing civilians in war, something we definitely don't see in a movie painting him as a pinnacle of virtue. 
Similar to the movie, Wallace claimed he couldn't be treasonous to a king he didn't acknowledge as his. On August 23rd, 1305, Wallace was taken to the Tower of London, where he was stripped naked and dragged across town by horse, where he was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Basically exactly what they do to him in the movie, except without any clothes on. Also, as the movie says, his limbs were taken to different corners of the kingdom, and his tarred head was placed on London Bridge. The movie ends with Robert the Bruce leading the Scots to victory at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314 CE. This is correct, but again, it's nine years after Wallace was executed, and 16 years after the English beat them at Falkirk. Once again, real life just happens at a different pace. And let's get a little more context for all these characters. Remember that Edward I was the grandson of King John. He was called Longshanks because he was quite tall for the time. He was seen as a very intimidating man, not just because of his size, but his temper. But he also had the respect of his people and is credited with restoring royal authority. His father and grandfather were Uyghur kings. And he did want to control the entire island of Great Britain. Before dealing with Scotland, he successfully subjugated Wales. Again, remember, these were different peoples. The Welsh and Scots were of Celtic descent. The priest who marries Wallace to his wife in the movie performs part of the ceremony in Gaelic, while Longshanks was a Norman king with Anglo-Saxon citizens. And Longshanks died of dysentery while campaigning against the Scots and Robert the Bruce two years after the death of William Wallace. As the movie would indicate, Edward II was not as strong a king as his father, His father never threw any male lover of his out a window, but powerful barons did repeatedly exile and later execute a man they thought was too close to the king and may have been his lover. And it was Edward II's forces who ultimately lost to Robert the Bruce of Scotland. Again, Longshanks was dead at the time. And what compounded problems for Edward, there was harsh weather that devastated crops and livestock that caused widespread famine. In fact, it's even known as the Great Famine and affected much of northern Europe. Tensions with the barons boiled over into a brief civil war, and while they did have several children together, it appears his wife and queen, Isabella, was not a big fan of his, at least late in his reign, and she may have even had an affair with one of his revolting barons. Revolting in the sense that he was fighting him. I don't know if he was, like, ugly or something. Her brother has succeeded her father as king of France, and tensions with the English continued. By January 1327, Edward was forced to abdicate the throne in favor of his son, who was crowned Edward III at 14 years old. I'll get more into it in another bonus episode, but it's the many descendants of Edward III who will battle each other in England's War of the Roses. Princess Isabella does seem to have been well cast. She is said to have been beautiful, intelligent, and a good diplomat. The film also nails the red and blue tunic she wears when she first meets Wallace. It has the lines of England on one side in red and the fleur-de-lis of France on the other side in in, uh, blue. The fleur-de-lis is a common symbol you'll see everywhere once you start recognizing it. Its origins are unclear, but it's been associated with the French church and royalty and culture for centuries, though other nations use it as well. And if you're starting an NFL franchise in New Orleans, Louisiana with its French Cajun roots, the fleur-de-lis is a perfect choice for your helmet logo. I've already mentioned how the movie screws up Isabella's timeline. One other little thing worth mentioning is that her lover, who helped uh, depose her husband, was ultimately executed by her son. So again, it's a great movie, just not one concerned with historical accuracy. But that's not their responsibility as entertainers, is it? Yes, we like it when they're more accurate, and we often assume they are more accurate than they are. And from a story standpoint, there are a few big misses, but it's not anything that much more egregious than 
many other movies. Why does something like, say, Gladiator not have as bad a reputation as Braveheart in terms of historical accuracy? Well, Gladiator at least probably looked right. Their kilts weren't worn at this time in Scotland, so there's another big knock, knock against it. There's no evidence of Longshanks instituting Prima Noctis, where the English lords were allowed to sleep with new Scottish brides. We see Wallace implore Robert the Bruce that we can have something none of us has ever known, a country of our own. Well, he doesn't have a very good memory then. Scotland was completely independent until Longshanks got involved after the death of the Scottish king Alexander III. And the Irish don't seem to have been involved at all in any of this, as they are in the movie. Elsewhere in the world around this time, the Ottoman Empire was established just a year after William Wallace lost at Falkirk, and it will last until the 20th century. Marco Polo was a contemporary of our characters today. He was born after Longshanks and before Edward II. He returned from his adventures in Asia just a couple years before the Scottish rebellions began. We also enter a period known as the Avignon Papacy. Beginning in 1309, so four years after Wallace's death, a series of French popes resided in Avignon, France instead of Rome. And we're right on the cusp of the Black Death, the most devastating loss of life Europe would ever see. That'll be discussed next week, where we'll see a young knight challenge death to a chess match in the 1957 Ingmar Bergman classic, The Seventh Seal. <laughs> <laughs>